Hey, can we start with a word of prayer this morning? Father God, thank you for this morning. God, we come in here today and all of us are carrying a different story. Father, we come in here today, maybe some of us putting limitations on what you're capable of. And so before we even get started, would you remind us that all things are possible through you? Father, I'm so thankful that you promise that when we gather in agreement, that your power and your presence is made more available to us. And we're so incredibly thankful for that. And God, if I can just kind of end this prayer with a favor, would you allow the Tennessee Volunteers to lose today in the SEC tournament? And all God's people said, amen. Hey, good morning and welcome to Trace. My name's Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. We're incredibly grateful to have each and every one of you with us today. I want to say welcome to all of you in this room. I want to say welcome to those of you that are watching online, but a special welcome to each and every one of our guests today. If you are not in a hurry, listen to me. If this is your first time here, or maybe you've been here for a couple weeks and you're not in a hurry today, I'm going to be out at Next Steps. And if you would just stop by and say hi, I won't keep you very long. I truly would be honored just to meet you. And so if you'd stop by and say hi, I would really appreciate that. Well, today we're continuing in a series called James. And if you want to kind of jump ahead really quick, we're going to be in James chapter 2 today. And so if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to turn them open or turn them on. You can find your way over to James chapter 2. But before we get there, let me say just a couple things about this particular book of the Bible. I would say that this is probably one of my my favorite books of the Bible because it's one of the easiest books to point people to if they're brand new to the faith. I love talking to people that are far from God about Jesus. And so if I can entice someone to maybe grow a little bit of interest in wanting to know more about what God says, I quickly point them to the book of James. If there were subtitles to the different books of the Bible, and again, if you're new to the church, we have 66 books in our English Bible. And so if there were subtitles to those books, I would imagine the subtitle for the book of James would likely read, How to Live a Practical Christian Life. It's incredibly practical. This is why my wife and I actually encourage our kids to memorize the first chapter in the book of James, because even in their young lives, it's, it's incredibly practical. There's things that they can almost immediately implement. And all that aside, I would also say that the fact that James was an unbeliever like James, if you didn't know this, he's one of the brothers of Jesus. The fact that he was an unbeliever and didn't believe his own brother was the Messiah until his brother was resurrected from the dead and met him face to face, that should entice all of us to want to know more about what he has to say. One of the reasons that I personally connect with this book is because James is constantly calling us to action. Something that I try to model in my own preaching. Maybe you've picked up on this. I don't simply want to ever come in here on any given Sunday and preach to us so that our biblical IQ grows and we leave here not changing anything about how we live and how we love others. I'm not interested in that. And so my hope is that the motive of each of us as we come here on any given Sunday is yes, to maybe grow our biblical IQ, but only to change how we love and what we, we do. I would also say it this strongly, that growing in the knowledge of Jesus without showing the love of Jesus should be an oxymoron. And that leads me to our text for today. And I wanna give you a heads up because the text that we're gonna be specifically looking at today in James chapter two has got some theological tension wrapped up in it. And some of you geek out over this stuff and so you just got a little bit excited, it's good, it's all right. 
And so we're going we're gonna to look at something that James says in chapter 2 that has caused a lot of scholarly debate over the years. And it really comes down between these two subjects. Are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? And I would tell you before we even jump into the text, I would tell you that this is an incredibly, an incredibly important subject to understand because there are churches and denominations and religions that have taught this in the wrong way, and I believe they're misrepresenting the heart of our Heavenly Father. So, I believe if we will look closely, if we will take the time and we will look closely, that there's a lot more, there's a lot more clarity on this subject than there, <clears throat> excuse me, than there is confusion. And my hope is that before we're done today, you agree with me. So, James chapter two, beginning in verse 14. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions, can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or, or clothing, and you say, goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? You see, faith by itself isn't enough. <laughs> like them fighting words right there. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now, someone may argue some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there's one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now, many of you are already jumping to some other verses in the Bible where you're thinking, man, aren't there some other verses that would contradict what James just said? And just hold on because we're likely going to get to many of those verses, but I think it would be important for us in this moment to understand the context in which, J in which James is talking about faith. And I think if we look at verse 19, it gives us a very clear description of how James is defining <clears throat> faith. He says this, you say you have faith, for you what? Believe. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. So in the context in which James is defining this is belief that there is one God. And I think it's incredibly important to understand that because the context in which James may be referring to this idea of faith may be different from other authors to which some of you may say, well, I thought everybody in the Bible when they talked about faith was gonna be talking about it in the same way to which I'd say that's not true depending on their context, depending on their audience and who they were speaking to, they may reference it in different ways. For instance, if you were to ask me how I define faith, I would say that genuine faith always leads to faithfulness, specifically faithfulness in Jesus, which means we follow through on what we believe. But I don't see James defining faith in that way here. He simply, he simply seems to be applying this idea of faith or belief in an acknowledgement, in a simple acknowledgement that there is one God. And yes, for those of you that were thinking about some other verses that are poten potentially contradicting, you'd be correct. Let's look at Ephesians chapter two when Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. For it is by what? Grace. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. 
And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by what? Not by works, so that no one can boast. For you are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, So the intention when we follow through with our faith, because I believe genuine faith is a faith that's followed through with, that there should be an intention, some intentionality on our part to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, I wanna take a moment here and just camp for a second, because I wanna make sure that nobody has even the possibility of walking out of those doors today, not understanding that you are saved by grace, period. Because if we're not saved by grace, if we're not saved by what Jesus accomplished on that cross for us, and we have to work for our salvation, that means that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough. And if Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough, that that leads us all into this this ambiguous way of life of wondering, have I done enough to earn God's love or or am I still considered apart from him? To which I would point to 1 Peter 3.18, and I love, the, I love the language of 1 Peter 3.18, because it says that Jesus died once and for all. Jesus died once and for all sins, ready? So that Jesus could give us back to God. So that Jesus could bring us back to God. We didn't bring ourselves back to God. Jesus brought us back to God. There's nothing that any of us can ever do to earn salvation. It is a free gift from our heavenly father by sending Jesus to die in our place on a a cross so that we could be given grace, the unmerited favor of God. But, but simply saying that we believe was never what Jesus had in mind. You see, anyone, anyone can say they believe, but the foundation of true faith is follow through. Let me show you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five. He says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. If you got my email, you know that over the last couple of weeks, I had the honor and privilege to go to Israel. And it was an amazing opportunity in which you'll hear me talk probably a lot about in the coming weeks. And truly my hope is in the next couple of years that we'll be able to start taking trips from this church over to Israel, because I promise you, you'll never read the Bible the same again. For instance, when Jesus is teaching on that text that I just mentioned to you, that you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And we glorify God through our good deeds. He was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this past week, I was actually standing on the Sermon on the Mount. And behind me is the Sea of Galilee. And this would have been the area where Jesus preaches his most famous sermon. And then our tour guide, who's in the next picture, is actually pointing. So we, she's right beside me and she's pointing to a city called Tiberias. It was a Roman city. Obviously, it's a lot more developed today, but it would have been there during the life of Jesus. And so you can imagine Jesus is teaching everyone in front of him, and he says, a city on a hill, and is likely pointing to this very city. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
Therefore, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I actually got to go on this trip because my mentor, who's been in ministry for 30 or 40 years now, Don Wilson, invited a bunch of lead pastors to go with him. And so we got to spend time with him and his wife, who they've been married 40 plus years. And I wanted to share something that he shared with us. He was talking about different aspects of their marriage while we were on this trip. And at one point, they brought up the five love languages. How many of you guys are familiar with the five love languages? If you're not, quick reminder maybe that they're acts of service, words of affirmation, quality time, gifts, and physical touch. And as he was talking to us about this, he said, my wife's love language is gifts. And my love language is physical touch. The problem is, is that I don't like buying gifts and she doesn't like physical touch. So she started buying herself gifts and I started touching myself. <laughs> Has nothing to do with my sermon, but I thought you'd appreciate that like I did but I'll do my best to make a transition here. You ready? <laughs> the things that we do for ourselves, the things that we do for ourselves almost will never point people to our heavenly father. I mean, think about it. You ever hear anybody say, man, look how good her hair looks today. Thank you, Jesus. Man, look how awesome that car is. That new car, they just got like, thank you, God. That's it. Well, I'll take that back a little bit. When I first saw my wife, I was like, thank you, Jesus. Like, yeah. Now, Jesus says it's our good works. Jesus says it's our good deeds done in his name that will demonstrate that people need to look to their heavenly father. Genuine faith always leads to obedience to God. And obedience to God is doing work in Jesus' name. Now, to be fair to the discussion, I do wanna bring into this some of the ambiguity, some of the confusion when it comes to different wording that is used when it comes into, are we saved by faith alone? Or are we saved by works? Are we saved by simply believing, acknowledging that God exists? Or does there need to be a follow-through with our faith? And I could quickly point you to the, probably the most famous sermon in the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Well, wait a minute. Now that's starting to sound contradictory, right? Because that's just belief. It's just saying that we need to believe. I could also point to Acts chapter 16. And before I read this, let me kind of build the narrative of what's happening. Paul and Silas were arrested for doing miracles in Jesus' name. They're thrown into prison. And while they're there, an earthquake happens, which shakes the doors of the jail open. And the, the jailer wakes up and he, he freaks out because he's like, oh man, the, the, all my prisoners got out. I'm going to get in trouble. And so he's, he's in the process of killing himself when Paul yells out and he says, hold up, hold up, hold up. Nobody's left. We're all in here. You don't need to do that. And the jailer is completely convicted in this moment and comes to them and says, guys, what do I have to do to be saved? To which Paul responds, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your entire household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And notice this, and he was baptized at once. 
A faith rooted in belief with immediate, don't miss it, follow through. Immediately, he was baptized, an act of obedience. He and his family. Then he brought them into his house and he set the food before them and they rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, this is where it's critically important that you hear what I say next because there's a certain amount of biblical understanding, right? We do want to build our biblical IQ, but it needs to change how we live and what we do. But we do need to build our biblical IQ so that we have a greater and broader understanding of the narrative of the Bible, of the narrative of Jesus, of the narrative of the New Testament, and maybe even the narrative of specific books like the book of James. And so if you have a broader understanding of the entire narrative, of the Bible, specifically the entire narrative of the New Testament, you will know that every single time any of the disciples or apostles teach about belief and or faith, it's always, always with the intention of being obedient. It's always with the intention of following through with what you say you believe. Let me say it this strongly. The apostles never preached The apostles never preached belief without obedience. So let me say it again. Growing in the knowledge of Jesus without showing the love of Jesus should be an oxymoron. And so when James, let's bring it back to James. So when James references belief, when James references faith, he seems to be representing more of an acknowledgement, just a simple acknowledgement that, yeah, there's a God. There's a God, and maybe the best example that I could give you is something that we already read, but oftentimes the people that wanna get caught up in the nuances of this and even the semantics of the wording miss a very clear example that James gives us. Let me go back to verse 19. He says this, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe. And so let's make this really practical really quick. Does anyone in here think that Satan and or the demons are going to be saved because they believe in Jesus and God? And you better believe that they are, or they do. They do believe in Jesus and God. But does anybody in here think that that Satan and or the demons will will be saved simply because of their belief? Absolutely not. And so when we are reading this in the context in which James was giving it, we have to come away with the understanding, the broader understanding that James is acknowledging or simply pointing to that some are acknowledging that there is a God. But genuine faith always has obedience and always has a tendency to follow through with what you say you believe. So, just in case... Just in case anybody is in here right now and they're thinking to themselves, well, where does that leave me right now? Because if I'm honest, I've been pretty disobedient. If I'm honest, there have been some things where I know what God wanted me to do. I know what he wanted me to do, but I chose not to. I chose to do the opposite. And so can we just even the playing field really quick? Is that okay? All of us have been disobedient. All of us have known the right thing to do and chose to do the opposite. All of us have drifted and deviated from the purpose and will of God in our life. And so where does that leave us? Thank God. 
thank God he gives us victory over sin. Thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to me, it's our faith in this promise, church. It's our faith in this promise that should lead us away from deliberate disobedience. Not because we have to work for our salvation, but because we're grateful that we don't have to. We should want to avoid deliberate disobedience in our life because of the grace of Jesus who gave his life for each and every one of us so that you don't, don't ever have to worry if you've done enough because he did it all for you. And out of a grateful spirit, out of an appreciation for what he's done for each and every one of us, we should fight the deliberate disobedience in our life because faith, genuine faith, is always followed through with. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still disobedient, while even some of us were still destructive, while, while some of us were, were stiff-arming the Holy Spirit because we knew and we know what he wants us to do, but we pushed him away. While you were still there, Christ died for you. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we, now have, been, we have now received reconciliation. And Trace, listen to me. If we believe this, if you believe this, and it doesn't lead you to do good works, and it doesn't lead us to pursue obedience to God, and if it doesn't lead us to say yes to Jesus, not just one time, but over and over again, I believe James, the brother of Jesus, who was an unbeliever, would look at you and look at me and say your faith is dead. Guys, do you know why we're so adamant about baptism here? Do you know why we talk about that so much? And if you don't know this about us, now you're going to learn this. We don't believe baptism saves you. We believe a repentant heart saves you through the grace of God. But baptism, as we saw earlier in that one story, but also throughout many narratives in the New Testament, baptism was almost always the immediate action step that was next for someone who claimed that Jesus was the leader and Lord of their life. It was their first act of, diso or first act of obedience. And so think of it, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, but you immediately say, I don't want to do the very next thing that he has asked me to do, does that look like a faith that's being followed through with? Now, I want to be really, really, really careful here. Because sometimes it simply comes down to you haven't been educated. It simply comes down that you may have come from a different church tradition. Maybe it was, <clears throat> it was a church tradition that baptized babies. And you've heard me say this many times. We don't ever want to take away that from your parents. We think it's an incredibly honorable thing that your parents did that. But we never... We never see infants getting baptized in the New Testament, ever. 
And so we always want to follow the instruction to the best of our ability that the Bible gives us, specifically in the New Testament. And so maybe this is a decision that you haven't made. And to be clear, I'm not saying you're not saved, but would I challenge that you're not being obedient? Yeah, I would. And we all have our excuses. Believe me, I heard them, I've heard them. <laughs> kind of like my friend, Joy. Check this out. So I was raised in a tradition that didn't um, perform baptisms or communion, any of that sort of thing. They just really wanted to focus on what was essential for salvation. So I grew up with a lot of grace and understanding that. Uh, when I became a Christian, I was at a very young age. I stood in front of the congregation to profess that faith, um, but was never baptized. It was just not part of our tradition and not something I did. And then by the time I was in churches that did celebrate baptism, I felt like that was for other people. It wasn't for me because I was kind of past that, um, accepting Christ and all that. As I was in Rooted One, um, we talked a lot about through this um, and I was just really rather resistant about like, I don't have to do that. I'm um, fully saved and that sort of thing. It was just recently, particularly at the women's retreat that we were um, really focusing on um, what was keeping us from peace, but also um, some of our sins and how we could turn that sin into uh, victory and what that would look like. And I was convicted that um, pride was holding me back from a lot of um, just blessings in Christ and um, yeah, just holding me back. So I um, wrote on my puzzle piece at Retreat Pride and the flip side of that was humility and I realized that um, it was really pride holding me back from baptism that I wanted to kind of dig my heels and say I don't have to but also that it just felt like maybe it was just silly for me to do that after all these years of being a Christian. The very same day that we left the women's retreat and I came down um, to church and um, during worship I just felt um, very convicted that this was something Jesus was asking me to and so why not and I wanted to say yes to Jesus and I look at it now as though I've been married to Christ for 45 years and now I get to have a wedding, so let's do this. It should never get old. It should never get old. On Easter Sunday, we're gonna do something that we've done here from time to time called an open baptism. And we're going to invite anybody and everybody that's never made that decision to come forward. Maybe it's your friends and neighbors and coworkers that you're going to invite that have no idea what's coming. It happens every time we do this. But right now I'm talking to you. And so let me talk to you. If you've not made this decision, I want to encourage you today during our response time to come and grab a towel. We're very intentional about making these towels white because it's a, it's a sign that you are surrendering to the leadership and lordship of Jesus to not do life your own way anymore on your own terms, but to do it on his terms. And so my hope is today that if you've never made that decision, that you'll come forward and grab a towel and you can schedule the baptism for whenever you want, but if you wanna hold off till Easter Sunday, you can do that too. Let me lead us into my response time, our response time by sharing something, probably one of the most impactful moments that happened to me during my time in Israel. There was a moment where we got to go up to Caiaphas's house, which was the high priest who arrested Jesus with that mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. And 
We know that they kept Jesus overnight before they went and put him in front of the Roman council, specifically in front of Pontius Pilate. And there's a holding cell at the bottom of Caiaphas's house. And the only way that you can get into this holding cell, now you can walk through stairs, but before the stairs weren't there, was there was a little circle in the top of this holding cell that you would have lowered people down through. I got to go down and stand in this space. It was only about 12 by 12, nothing but concrete, incredibly cold. And I sat there, and many of the other lead pastors that were with me on this trip, we, we probably would all have to admit that it was one of the most impactful moments, knowing that in this little chamber, my Messiah stood alone, isolated, cold, betrayed awaiting a death that you and I deserved. And it hit pretty hard. And I found myself just asking God one question over and over. God, what do you want me to do different? What do you want me to do different? It's not that I didn't believe all of this was real before this moment, you know, standing in that cell. Of course, I believed it to the bottom of my heart. But there was something about that that just reminded me of how real that moment was specifically for Jesus. God, what do you want me to do different? And honestly, one of the things that I felt like he kept impressing on me over and over again is Aaron, teach your church, his church, but Aaron, teach your church how to proclaim the name of Jesus until he returns. And it reminded me of a passage <laughs> where Paul talks about and explains communion, and I'm gonna read it to us as we enter into this time. And what he says, it's, it's in uh, his letter to the Corinth church. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup and after, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then his last statement is a statement that, unfortunately, we often overlook in the church. And this is on me. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. Today, if you're a follower of Jesus, we want to encourage you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us. And around the room are four crosses where there are these communion cups. And there's some juice in that cup that represents the blood of Jesus and a little cracker that represents his body. And can I ask you today as your pastor, if you'll afford me that opportunity, can I ask you today for God to help you to proclaim the name of Jesus where you live, where you work, where you play, that you'll be more bold in bringing up the very thing that you would say is the most important thing in your life, because one day he will return, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not, but all we have is just a little bit of time and a little bit of opportunity. And so may we be obedient with the influence that he's given us. I'm gonna pray for us, and if you would like to receive prayer today, we do have some people in the back and red shirts that would love the opportunity to pray with you. 
Uh, for the rest of us, we're gonna experience communion. If you're here today and you've never made that decision, this is a time for you to kind of sit and reflect and maybe focus on what I said and maybe come grab a towel. Let me pray for us. God, I think we need to come back to you more often with simple questions. Like, what do you want us to do different? God, how, how do I need to challenge my own disobedience? Father, what would it look like for me to elevate more good works and good deeds in my life in the name of Jesus? Not because I need to earn your love or favor or forgiveness or salvation, but because I'm so thankful that I don't have to do those things. So God, I pray that this is a moment where we get to hear from you. I pray this is a moment where we're challenged to action. And God, that we would heed the words of James. It's never been about just acknowledging that you're real but to follow through with that reality. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Feel free to respond.